Fake Show is brought to you by Threads of Envy, the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, and by Mr. Antenna. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Donny Osmond's residency here in Vegas at Harrah's is not only continuing, but it is now extended into late this year. He has worked very hard to make this one of the must-see shows on the Strip, and that's saying a lot. After over his decade-long run with Sister Marie, he packs in a career's worth into the incredible 90-minute show, and I wanted to talk to him about that and his history in show business, the highs and the lows, as I've got my friend Donnie Osmond on the line right now. Hey, Jim. Donnie Osmond. Donnie, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you? Oh, so good. Great to talk to you. Welcome back. And uh, I think the last time we did talk, you had fully recovered from that health scare. How are things going? Obviously, great because you're you're going 100. percent Oh, again. I, I bounce back like the ever ever ready bunny. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, in fact, the show that I do is is quite physical, quite demanding. So you've got to stay in shape. Yeah, And so it's my workout every night. So it's uh, either going to kill me earlier or keep me uh, healthy. Yeah, you know, uh, you talk to other performers and really that's it. There's no time really for any kind of a workout because you leave it all there on the stage, don't you? It depends on the show, obviously. And, and the way I like to perform is it's very physical, a lot of dancing. Of course, people expect the those kinds of things after winning Dancing with the Stars and all the dancing and stuff <laughs> that I've done in the past. Yeah. They, the bar... Has kind of been raised in a self-inflicting way <laughs> because, because people expect everything and the kitchen sink, and that's what they get. In fact, I was just talking to somebody about this. They said that we saw the show, and we don't think you left anything out. So it, it really yeah. is six decades of show business in 90 minutes. In fact, somebody said the other day, it was it's really kind of cool, and I agree with them. It's not a show. It's more of a Broadway production because there's so much in it. And, in the show. Does that have to do with the people that you have created this with? Like, for instance, Greg Young of Mojave Ghost, who has produced Tony and Drama Desk award-winning productions on Broadway, so you kind of knew you were in good hands, right? Well, exactly. You're as only as successful as the people you surround yourself with, uh, to, to coin a, um, a cliche. But there's so many talented people. My band it's rumored that I have the best band in, in Vegas. And I th- I'm going to say it's more than a rumor. I think it's a fact. My dancers handpicked every single one of them. They are amazing. The crew, uh, my my uh, creative team. Raj Kapoor is another name I want to drop. Yeah. He's the one that, that comes up with uh, all the creative ideas for the, the Grammys and the Oscars and the Emmys. And he is like a, a brilliant guy. His whole team came in and, and uh, Tom Sutherland is part of his team that lit the whole thing. He's just amazing. And and uh, when you get that many great people around you, it kind of hedges your bet in this, it, to a certain extent. But you never, ever know, Jim, if it's going to work. You can throw it against the wall. and But unless the people come to see it, unless they like it, it's not going to work. How did you find Raj Kapoor? Same management team. Yeah, He, uh, he, he was uh, a dancer and uh, was a dancer for many, many years and, and turned into producer, creative director. So... I've wanted to work with him for many, many years. And when the Donnie and Marie show was coming to an end, I thought, let's bring him to Vegas and have him see the show. And he listened to the album that I was working on at the time, which is out now, my 65th album, by the way. And uh, he said, <laughs> this is more than an album. This is this is a show. So we just started ca- talking about ideas, kicking it back and forth. 
And it was an embryonic idea of what I have at Harris right now. And we had so much fun putting it together because after six decades of show business, you have a repertoire that's kind of long. There's one segment of the show. I can't remember if I told you this last time, but it's probably one of my favorite parts. I call it the, re the request segment. So yeah. for 15 minutes, anyone in the audience can pick any song I've ever recorded in my entire life. And we do it. And we get to about maybe five or six songs before we move on to the show. Donnie, that's 65 albums. Yeah. Do you, do you remember all, what is that, 600 no, plus songs? I don't. In <laughs> fact, in fact uh, just the other day, somebody uh, requested a, a song. Jim, I don't even remember <laughs> recording the song. And so it came on there. The band started playing with it. I remember the first line, and that was it. And I just sat back and listened. Everyone was laughing. It was a very funny moment. But it was real because I couldn't remember it. Well, yeah. See, now people are trying to stump you now. They're not just saying uh, oh, down, yeah. down by the lazy river. They're going no, real deep. No, it happens deep, every right? night. They're trying, <laughs> they're trying to stump me. <laughs> well, and it, as we're recording this, the it was just announced that the your residency inside Harris Showroom is basically going through the end of the year that you yep. you signed up for all, all those uh, many more shows. It is an exciting day, Jim, because you know you always hope that that it will stick. Like I was saying earlier, but it's definitely sticking. And and I have to thank the audiences and and everyone here in Vegas, this community, who's embraced this show. Because uh, let's be honest with each other, I was coming off uh, a very successful show with my sister at the Flamingo, eleven years, yeah. and you'd be surprised how many naysayers came to me and says, oh, you're never going to top that. And so I went in with a lot of skepticism from people saying, can he pull this off? And uh, even Marie came to the show and she said, it's unbelievable. It's fantastic. I imagine the first few shows you did, you were kind of looking over to the side uh, where Marie would have been standing. It had to be a little strange, right? <laughs> well, you know what's interesting about that comment, Jim, is that... Uh, a lot of people, depending on the generation, they think my whole entire career has been based around the Donnie and Marie brand, whereas that's only right. one of three. Uh, there's the Osmond brothers, there's right. the Donnie solo, and there's Donnie and Marie. And what's nice about this current show is that it encompasses everything, everything I've done in 90 minutes. Um, when I was a kid, and you and I are about the same age, I've talked about that before, I, I first started seeing you guys on the Andy Williams show, and Andy really seemed to take you guys in. I think he saw something in you guys that he saw in himself and his, and the Williams brothers. I, I, I have a real strong feeling that you reminded him of, uh, of his own family. You're, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what happened. Um, Andy Williams' father actually saw us on, or saw my brothers. This is before I was part of the band. Yeah. I was like, one at the time too he saw my brothers on an on a walt disney show it's called walt disney or disney after dark and he said to his son andy he says you got to see these boys you got to put them on the, on your show so they auditioned for andy put them on the show and and it was the response was amazing and then andy said do you have anybody else at home and he said we have a little brother named donnie <laughs> so i came and auditioned and he said you got to be on the show and i never looked back since i was five at the time yeah, you're, you were five at the time, but with 65 albums now, you must have had four or five albums out already, right? Yeah, it was on my seventh <laughs> album at the time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Andy's Christmas specials with you guys as guest stars. Yeah. For me, it's right up there with Charlie Brown and Rudolph. 
especially oh, the mm-hmm. ones where you are there singing. I, I remember the one where your brothers and you were singing with Andy and his brothers. Just really special. And all those complete episodes are out there on YouTube, by the way. It's funny you should bring that up. I was just watching that just the other day. Yes, it was the five brothers, Osmond brothers, and the four Williams brothers. They're sitting on stools and we're standing up uh, behind this little bar area. Yeah. And the harmonies, Jim. I mean, this is before, you know, auto-tune and all this kind of stuff. And the harmonies that we used to do and harmonize with the Williams brothers, that was a moment for us. And I think for the Williams brothers as well, because it was nine people harmonizing. It was it was really a cool moment. Yeah, it was. Um, when was the decision that you guys would become a rock act? Did someone, one of the brothers say, eh, we kind of want to take a left turn here and do something else? Big decision in our lives. At that point in the, the latter part of the 60s, we were Andy Williams' backup singers. And that's what we were known as. And it was a natural evolutionary process of teenagers wanting to branch into rock and roll. My brothers were listening to the Beatles. I caught the tail end of the Beatles, actually. And they said, we want to do that. We were listening to Led Zeppelin and all that. Said, we want to be in the recording industry. So we signed to, to Andy's label called Barnaby, and we released a song, <laughs> hit the charts with an anchor. Not a bullet, an anchor. Really? And, uh, oh, it was awful. And so uh, Mike Curb uh, believed in us. He was the president of MGM. Oh, yeah. And he brought Rick Hall from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, to see us at Caesars Palace one time um, when we were opening up for Andy Williams. And Rick Hall said, I think I can do something with these guys. And that's when we recorded One Bad Apple in, in uh, Muscle Shoals. In fact, funny story, Michael Jackson told me that uh, a One Bad Apple was originally written for them and they passed on it. And really? That's, it. It's interesting because it, it sounds like it could have been a Jackson song. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. In fact, it confused a lot of people because back in the day when there was 45s, the name of the, the writer would be right under the name of the title of the song. And his last name was Jackson. So it was written by George Jackson, no relation. So I said, one bad apple, Jackson. And so everybody said, yeah, it's a Jackson 5, which is interesting because first time I met Michael uh, it was in Toronto. And uh, Joe and Catherine were there talking with my mom and dad and all the brothers and uh, we're there and Michael and I were over playing toys, whatever. And Joe told my dad, he said, well, I got to let you in on the secret because we released One Bad Apple after um, I Want You Back, I think it was their first one, came out. So everybody thought we were copying the Jackson 5. And Joe said, well, George, my dad, it's actually a little bit the opposite because when you guys were on the Andy Williams show, I used to sit my children down and have them watch you guys and and telling them, I want you to do that. No. Study these kids. I want you to be entertainers just like that. So we had a good laugh about it because uh, everyone thinks we copied the Jacksons. It was just the other way around. Wow. Well, <laughs> yeah. uh, you guys had, you know, huge hits. One Bad Apple, Down yeah. by the Lazy River, Crazy Horses, and, and more. You were big, and you were, I think you were especially big over in England, Girls were around. You had a lot of female fans. Did you guys have a real sit-down meeting, you brothers, to talk about how are we going to deal? How are we dealing with this? What do we feel about this, guys? Well, you know, when when you have parents like I had, right, George and Olive, you know, they walk the walk and talk the talk. They were they were such examples to me, and they protected us. They kept all of that stuff away from us. Of course, our faith, 
being uh, in the yep. LDS religion are, yep. is is so important to each one of us. But yeah, come on, let's be honest. The temptations there all the time, all the time. But my, my parents were somehow able to avoid all of that stuff and keep us kind of isolated to a certain extent away from the promiscuous living. Thank goodness they did because I'd much rather live the lifestyle that I that I have lived and grown up like I did rather than fall short and compromise my standards. So I have my parents to thank for all of that. I'll always be grateful to them for the example that they always set. Um, very well said. And did it end sooner than you would have liked, the the, uh, the rock band experience part of the Osmonds? Very. I love your questions, by the way. These are fantastic because it's so insightful how you ask that because, yes, it ended abruptly. Just as almost uh, as fast as it came in. It seemed it like out. it as a consumer, as a kid, again, your age, listening on the radio and thinking, man, these guys are going to go on for a long time. Well, what happened was, uh, and it happens in every every career that starts out as a teeny bopper, let's, let's put it that way. Because I've had many different types of careers, but the teeny bopper one is quite fickle. And here's why. I hit it big when I was 12, 13 years old with all the other little teeny and weeny boppers. They like this little Donnie Osmond image. But when those teenagers reach about 16, so you only have a three-year lifespan, they grow up and they move on to adult things. They want to be considered an adult. And anything they liked as a 13-year-old is for for children. And even though I'm in the same dynamic, I'm 16, 17 years old, old as well, they still have me in a pigeonhole of 13. And it's for ch- for children. Right. And so I kind of get thrown out the, with the leftovers as well, with the garbage, because everybody else is moving on. But what we did was kind of interesting, fortuitously. Marie and I went into the Donnie and Marie show, which kind of bridged that problem to a certain extent, extended it a few more years, and then it collapsed after the Donnie and Marie show was over. Then the rebuilding and reinventing process had to take place. And it took me like 10 years before Soldier of Love came out. And that became a hit. Um, Soldier of Love, that's one that we played a bit on our morning show. And were you at a point then where you're playing that, you're on stage playing Soldier of Love, and you thought, I think I'm done playing Puppy Love now in my set list. I, I'm I'm a different kind of guy now. Oh, I have a story for you. Count Basie Theater, I think, I think that's the place it was in, in New Jersey. I was out on the Soldier of Love tour. Puppy Love is not in the set list. And I'm going through the show and the audience keeps yelling out, sing puppy love, sing puppy. And it really got under my collar. (laughs) Yeah. And finally in the middle of the show, I stopped the show and I said, you want puppy love? Okay. You got puppy love. And off mic, I turned around and I said to the band, give me a heavy metal version of puppy love. Let's get this thing over with. (laughs) And I just started. (laughs) And the band and I were having the time of our lives and the audience was like, whatever. (laughs) After the show was over, um, I was walking out the stage door to get on the bus and there's a bunch of fans there wanting autographs. This one lady grabs me and she says in a stern way, uh, why did you make fun of puppy love? And I said in a cocky kind of way, it's my song. I can do whatever I want to with it. Mm-hmm. And then she said something, Jim, that changed my entire life. She said, you may have had a hit with that song, but puppy love was a big part of my childhood memories and you have no right to mess with my memories. Oh, and I thought, right. Right there and then, I thought, I am never going to make fun of that song ever again. In fact, here in Vegas, it's the fourth song in the set list. And I sing it legitimately with a beautiful arrangement. 
don't even make fun. Even when I say, someone help me, help me. And I used to have a joke. A guy would say, all the guys are throwing up right now to get a little laugh. Mm-hmm. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. But don't do it. It's not, it's not worth it because I respect the song because yeah, I, it's, it was fine for the time for my age, obviously not now, but enough time has passed and I've moved on with my career. It's easier for me and important for me to look back and embrace the Donnie who was 13, 14 years old, who sang Puppy Love. Just to take a step back again, you though that year that you did the American Music Awards where you and Michael Jackson were presenting an award, Dick Clark put yeah. you two guys together. That was really cool. That's a very memorable experience for me watching that on TV. After the after you did that, you guys actually went out and had a bite to eat. Is that right? Funny story. Yes, that uh, American Music Awards, it was the very first one, and Dick Clark, a good friend of both both Mike and, and mine. It was the only time, Jim, that Michael and I were on television together in a public appearance. Amazing. And, and uh, it never happened since. In fact, Mike and I were going to do a single together before he passed away, and it never, never happened. But, wow. But yes, uh, according to the food story, we are backstage uh, on uh, the right side backstage in the wings. And it was all over, coming down uh, out of commercial. And I look at Mike and I said, Mike, are you hungry? He says, I'm starving. He says, follow me. So we walk out to my limo and we hop in the limo. In hindsight, I wish I had a picture of this. And we drive to Jack in the Box <laughs> and we pull up to the little speaking clown face all right. and we order all these tacos. And so Mike and I, we open up the, the moonroof, right? And we're driving down Sunset Boulevard that night and eating tacos laughing our heads off and it was a moment in my mind i will never forget and mike and i we would laugh our heads off when we get together and and reminisce about all the moments that we've had together privately you know and that was definitely one that really really made us laugh a great moment and memory i'll never forget and i I treasure because that's the michael jackson i hold near and dear to my heart not the not the one that made some weird decisions at the end of his life. Uh, but what was the single? Did you have something in mind that you were going to do with him? I cut a track. Do you remember um, uh, Stevie Wonder's I Wish Those Days? Of course. Come back with mom. So I cut a track. In fact, I played it for Stevie. And he said, oh, man, this is going to be fantastic. And then the next morning, I, I went to uh, Neverland. And I played it for Michael. And uh, he said, this is going to be amazing. So we set a date about three weeks after that meeting at Neverland to do our vocals. Mike calls me about a week later and he said, Donnie, I'm having a lot of problems with the press right now. and uh, I'm so much on my plate. Can we postpone the recording session? I said, Mike, postpone it all you want. Let's record it when you feel right about it. And it never happened. That sucks. Yeah, um, it would have been so cool. And he was excited about it, too. I don't know why this one came up, but it was an episode of Friends recently where Joey becomes a contestant on Pyramid, <laughs> which you were hosting at the time, and, and you did a great job, by the way. Thank do, you. What do you recall about shooting that episode? Because it was hysterical. Okay, I'll be very honest with you, okay? It wasn't the fact that he was funny. It wasn't the fact that it was really cool. It's the fact that I was going to be on Friends. Right. That I'm going to be part of that history. Yeah, because it was, you know, it's such a popular and it's still such a popular show. Yeah. And I'm a part of that alum, uh, that, that, that history. I'm a part. Of, in fact, somebody uh, showed me this. There's a um, 
a coffee table book of pictures of friends. They showed me my picture in that book. And I thought, how cool is that? You yeah. know, I've been able to have a lot of accolades and it's so blessed over the years. There's certain things where you say, yeah, that's kind of cool. And that's one of them to be part of that, that whole, uh, friends history. Uh, by the way, the guy who, this is like totally left field trivia from that episode, but the guy who played Matt LeBlanc's partner is, yes. a, is a regular now on Blue Bloods. <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, he kind of on Blue Bloods, he's got kind of like white hair. He's Tom Selleck's assistant, his like PR guy. Oh yeah. I got to tune it in. I haven't seen it because he was really good the way he played off of him. Yeah. Well, I, I know that you're a tech geek, too, engineering yeah. a lot of your own stuff and using Cubase, which I was excited uh, to hear. How how amazing is it? How far has the studio come since the one bad Apple days? Not to say that the production value wasn't great on that either, but... Well, you go back and listen to those original masters. There's magic on those masters. There's something about tape and the saturation that you can get from it. It's still better to record kick and bass on on tape because right. you get that kind of tape distortion and saturation uh, but the possibilities that we can do on on DAWs nowadays like Cubase possibilities are endless and native instruments I don't know if you're familiar with that you can just create anything yeah and what's interesting about recording today is that rather than um, acoustic instruments and real instruments we went to electronic instruments uh, over a period of time when computers started coming in then we went back to, you know, real instruments that are tweaked a little bit electronically. And now with what we can do, it's just sounds, whatever you want to, want to dream up, it's the most interesting sounds you can create. That's where music is now. And it's never been more exciting than it is right now. The problem you got with the music industry is everybody is a writer. Everybody is a singer. Everybody's a musician because it's so easy to become one without putting your putting forth your dues and paying the price and becoming a great musician and writing a great song with a great melody and great lyrics. Um, there's so much garbage out there, but boy, with technology, if you're a great writer and a great singer, you got some really cool stuff. You look at what Bruno Mars has done. Look at yeah. you know, Beyonce, what's, what she's been able to accomplish. I can hardly wait for Bruno's next album, I'm sure. And Rihanna, you know, just what she did on, on, on uh, the Super Bowl. I, I love her. In fact, it, I have an interesting connection with Rihanna. The guys that um, discovered her, Carl Sturkin and Evan Rogers, they're the ones that wrote and produced Soldier of Love for me. Wow. Yeah. So there's a nice, nice little tie wow, with fantastic. Rihanna. Do you get a chance to see any other acts on the strip, or are you just always working when everyone else is working? That's the problem. We're always doing shows at the same time. In fact, my yeah. friend Neo is coming here uh, really soon. I wish I could see his show, but everything's happening at the same time. Well, everybody can purchase tickets at Ticketmaster.com slash Donnie and uh, the show. Or, or you can go to Donnie.com if you want to go there too. Donnie.com and shows <laughs> beginning at 7.30. Limited number of pre-show VIP experiences also will be available. Can't wait to see you um, at some point during this year, Donnie. It's, it's always Anytime cool. Anytime you want to come, you just give me a buzz. Appreciate that. It's always a cool thing talking to you, buddy. Great to talk to you too, pal. Take care. Good luck with the run of the shows. Thanks, Jim. Bye-bye. He is so interesting because he has total control of his career and knows every aspect of performing now from the stage to recording. And he could really teach a course to younger performers about what to do when things slow down a little bit because he has reinvented himself so successfully over the years. Well, that finishes this fun episode of The Fake Show Podcast. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.